The Buddha, I'm ready. The Buddha said, one should not allow the mind to wander without. Neither should a bhikkhu allow the mind to stop within. A bhikkhu who is able to be mindful in that way will eventually be able to distinguish, extinguish all suffering. Not allowing the mind to wander without and not allowing the mind to stop within. So we'll be exploring that a little this evening. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, as Philip, I think, was explaining earlier in the retreat, the monks were advised to be ardent, alert, mindful, and to put aside greed and distress for the world. So the wandering without is all the discursive thinking, the um, papancha, as it's called, the thought elaboration that we get caught in. That's the wandering without. And the greed and distress with reference to the world are all the hindrances. The greed, the aversion, doubt, confusion, sleepiness, restlessness, all of those things that block the natural unity of the mind. They all also block concentration and make it difficult for us to develop discerning wisdom and they strengthen delusion. And so it's important to realize that these strong forces carry us away and that we need to recognize them. So that's why it's important that our concentration is also blended with mindfulness. It's not enough to just blindly be with the breath. We also need to be able to notice and discern what works and what doesn't, where we're caught, what's blocking our concentration. And it's also useful to realize, as some of you already know, that this practice of concentration is a purification practice. And so it brings deep patterns to the surface. And so um, sometimes when we come on retreat and we just get caught in these really difficult places, like some of you have been describing, we think, if it wasn't for this, I would be able to get concentrated. If only this kind of stuff didn't have to come up. But in fact, the practice is bringing it up in order for us to be able to understand it and see it more clearly. And for the concentration, the power of the concentration, concentrated mind to lead to it dissolving and transforming. So it's not a mistake or a bad thing that these are arising. We want to be able to weaken these patterns in our lives. We don't just want to leave here having had a beautiful experience and find that nothing has changed when we re-enter our lives. We're still doing the same old. And so, um, have courage when those things happen. So, what I'd like to explore tonight are ways that we can support and deepen our concentration and at the same time work with these difficulties in a skillful way. We've already talked a little about some of the beautiful qualities of mind, the compassion, loving-kindness, patience, 
and so forth as ways of supporting our practice. Um, And I'd like to describe this evening some general approaches to working with difficulties and also more specific antidotes. The more concentrated we become, the less the hindrances have power over us. But in order to get concentrated, we also have to be able to work through the hindrances. So it's a kind of double bind. It's great that they're not there when we're concentrated, but how do we get there? How do we get to that place? Because they divert us. There's a lovely analogy in the suttas of our practice being like a river that's flowing down a mountain. And the hindrances are diverting the course of the river so that the river no longer has the power and flow to carry us to liberation. We can't flow because the hindrances are diverting the force of the water. When we're not aware of them, they rob us. But when we are aware of us, aware of them, they teach us. And then we're not so moved by them in our lives. But because we come here to get concentrated, this is a concentration retreat after all. That's what we want. Often the major obstructions are desire, wanting a certain state, wanting the states we had the last retreat, or aversion, aversion to how the practice is going right now. It's not how I want it to be. Um, Or maybe we perceive what we're doing as a failure. And so aversion and doubt and desire um, really can get us caught in our practice. So it's helpful to be clear about what exactly it is that's obscuring our practice and to have the tools to work with it. Sometimes it's very obvious, and sometimes it's really subtle. And it helps, as we've been talking, to have an attitude that's skillful and supportive. How we work with concentration practice, how we work with the hindrances in concentration, is a little different than how we work with it in our Vipassana practice. In our Vipassana insight practice, we used to putting our attention on the difficulties and exploring them and seeing how they arise, what happens as we pay attention to them, what their nature is. But here, we're letting the difficulties be in the background and as much as we can, keeping the breath in the foreground. And we actually see that the less that we're turned by the hindrance, the less footing the habits have in the mind. The less we get drawn into them and feed them, the less power that they have. And the more concentrated the mind is, the more flexible it is and the easier it is for them to be dispersed. And we see that when the mind is fairly concentrated, we don't have to believe them, get caught in their stories. We don't have to try and get rid of them. They just, by knowing them, dissolve and dissipate into the stillness and the silence and the awareness. So we're training the mind not through rejection, not through denial, not through trying to figure it out, but through cultivating this stillness, simply being, and silence. And through the stillness and the silence and the power of the concentration, these difficult states begin to weaken, dissolve, and we get freed from these obsessive attitudes. 
some of you have already mentioned in your interviews, oh wow, they, this stuff arose, but it just passed. I didn't get caught in it like I usually do. It wasn't that it didn't arise, but I didn't find myself being turned by it. It could come and go. And some of you came in and said, you know, I don't have any concentration and I can't stop myself being turned by this state. I'm caught. I can't seem to get unstuck. What do I do? That happens too. We can get really caught. And one of the difficult things at the beginning of the retreat, when we haven't yet built very much concentration, is the hindrances are harder to work with. And they can seem overwhelming. And we can't seem to stay with the breath. Because whatever state it is, is so strong and so persistent. And we need to see that this is not a bad thing. We're not a failure. Can I be with this with kindness while it's here? And I'll talk more about this. How to keep the breath as a through line and be able to be with this and use some of the tools that we have in our mindfulness practice to help us not take it so personally and not get so caught. So here, as I was saying, rather than being turned by the hindrance, turning to look at it, we're staying with the breath as best we can, releasing and reconnecting. And what that's called, the Buddha called that starving the hindrances. And he also talked, for those of you who are familiar with them, about feeding the factors of awakening, which at some point perhaps we'll talk about. But starving the hindrances. So we just pay enough attention to recognize that they're there, but we don't take that exit off the highway. We see it, we don't take it. Ajahn Chah simply says, the stray cats won't come around again if you don't feed them. And so we see them, we say, I like you. I, you can even say, I really wish I could feed you, but I'm sorry, not today. So we don't feed them. We avoid the familiar exits as best we can. And what's helpful is we get to know what our particular exits are. And so then we can see them coming before we're swept away. The sooner we can notice them, the less likely we are to get drawn and sucked in. Another um, teacher, Upasika Keenanayan, who is a wonderful, um, quite enlightened Thai lay teacher, She said, don't let them eat what they're addicted to. She's talking about the hindrances. Try and see if you can engage your mind with the breath in the same way it's been engaged with the defilements. Then there can be the dispersion of the defilements with every in-breath and every out-breath. So we're choosing where we incline the mind and we're letting the difficulty be in the background and staying with the breath as best we're able, acknowledging that sometimes that doesn't feel possible. And then it's very helpful, this is another general suggestion, to have an attitude, to notice our attitude both towards the breath and towards the hindrance. If the attitude is, often our attitude is one of wanting. 
we're trying to create some experience. And if there's expectation between you and the breath, then we're practicing with desire. If there's dislike and frustration between you and the breath, you're practicing with aversion. If you're rejecting the breath in some way, you're approaching it with ill will and aversion. If you're all caught up in getting it right or getting it wrong or you're worried about losing it or um, whatever, you're practicing with doubt. And so it's helpful to see that. We can cultivate acceptance of how the breath actually is, how we actually are. So how we connect and return to the breath, we notice. Are we doing it with aversion or with wanting or with irritation or impatience or anxiety or boredom? We just notice what's the quality of mind. Not figuring it out, not analyzing, but just knowing that. And this evening, I'd particularly like to look at five qualities which really help us both work with the hindrances and our antidotes to them, and also lead to the development of very deep, concentrated and absorbed states. And these are often called the jhana factors because they're constituents of these states of absorption, the jhana, and they also in sequence lead to their development and each one is an antidote to a particular hindrance. The word jayati in Pali, one translation is a steady flame and it's as though it's burning up these difficult forces, these difficult mind states. And they together help build a deep mental state of unification. And so I'll talk about each one of them and how together they help our practice. The first two are vitaka and vichara. And these are the ones that we can most actively choose to cultivate. Vitaka is this directed or applied attention, thought, and vichara is the sustained thought. And um, it's as though vitaka is the finger that's pointing, and vichara is the hand that's feeling out, that's sensing, that's um, pondering. It's the palm of thought, some people call it. In Philip's analogy with the hand, this is the hand that we're curious about, and we're gently making contact with it. That's the vitaka, gently making contact. We're not pressing into it, or pushing, or pulling. We're just gently connecting with it. And then we're sustaining. And the sustaining, the vichara, is this feeling out, being curious about, really seeing, how does this feel? What is this like? So there's a curiosity that helps us stay. So the vitaka is directing attention to the present moment in a friendly way. It's directing, gathering in, here, now, present, this moment, awake. The vichara is the receiving, feeling out, bonding, connecting, stabilizing. We're deepening our capacity to rest. 
Some people use the analogy of the striking of the bell is vitaka, and the ringing is the rachara. But it's also the touching is the vitaka, and then the feeling, cool, firm, hard, is the vichara, that sensing of what this is like, the feeling out. So it feels into it and explores. And some people, I think it was um, Kitisaro um, I learned this from, he calls, sometimes we talk about how mindfulness and con- concentration are blended. And the and there's also this sense of what's called um, chamato or um, stillness practice. And that's the vitaka. And the vichara just has that little bit of wisdom in that can sense and feel and know and adjust a little bit. So there's just enough contact for clear knowing. And then there's this receiving. So it's receiving and knowing the object. If there's only vitaka, then it's like kind of get back here, get back here, but there's no staying. So it's vichara that enables the anchoring and the staying and feels the subtle vibrations and the sensations. And you're already very familiar with them from your mindfulness practice. We can connect and sustain with many objects. We do it all the time. The mind's connecting, vitaka. The mind's experiencing directly, vichara. But neither of them are inherently necessarily wholesome. We can direct our attention to all sorts of things. And we can sustain our attention on long trains of thought. So it's not necessarily wholesome. We can sustain our attention on thoughts and fantasies and all sorts of things. We can get carried away. I was on a retreat once and I was quite concentrated and very still. And I began to have these visions of food going by. And so there are all these images of of steaming, steamed kale with sesame and all and, and <laughs> delicious dishes. And I could sustain my attention on it for quite a while. It was very pleasant. And at some point, this is not leading to liberation. <laughs> and so it's helpful to notice what are we connecting and sustaining with. Or it might be some beautiful, seductive, wonderful fantasy with the partner of your choice. And this happens on retreat because as the mind gets absorbed, we do develop the powers of really staying with. So we need to know, what am I staying with? It's helpful. Bhante Gunaratna described um, the three wise vitakas. And in a way, he's using um, the second factor of the path, wise, wise thought, wise intention of renunciation, friendliness, and compassion. So we're connecting with the breath in a friendly, non-judgmental, compassionate way. And we're also doing a little refraining. We're refraining from following the things we usually follow. We're refraining from indulging in stories, judging, comparing, fixing, complaining. And sometimes it can help be helpful to make that wise renunciation, that first wise vitaka. So with patience and kindness, 
we make a fresh start and we connect over and over again. And that builds this deepening of concentration that we um, can connect with. Wittaka is a powerful antidote for sloth and torpor. And some of you come in sleep-deprived. That's the most usual thing that happens when you start retreat. And then after a few days, the energy builds and it starts to dissipate. However, we can get very still and relaxed and it can lead to a very pleasant, drowsy, comfortable, relaxed state. The breath can be very soporific. Nice, long, slow, out-breath. And we're gone. It's seductive and trance-like. And sometimes we can get dream images. And we're not really lost in thoughts because they don't last long enough. But we're not really connected to the breath either. There's a disconnect. And it's very pleasant and dreamlike. And it sort of, it slithers around. We don't really move into definite thoughts. But we're just kind of hanging out. The assimile is a prison. And the key is in the door, but we just can't get our act together to get up and let ourselves out. It's kind of nice in here. And another analogy that applies to more the torpor aspect is slime on top of um, a pond. And that's kind of a more um, yucky image. But torpor has a more yucky feeling to it. It's dull, inertia, that sort of thing where you're nodding off and getting Vipassana whiplash. And you're, and you just, it feels, it doesn't feel pleasant. It's unpleasant. And you just sort of can't keep your eyes open. And really, there's not enough energy here to balance the calm that's developing. And it's still you clunk. And in a way, it's as though the battery of your flashlight is running down. And it's kind of running down very slowly, so you don't notice it until suddenly gone. And so what helps with these is you're quiet, but not dull. Uh, Sorry, but not, um, that's the dullness, but not necessarily the sleepiness. So connecting the vitaka brings energy, and it brings this quality of being awake. It opens and refreshes the mind to just keep connecting. And we think of creative ways to connect, sometimes focusing on the in-breath, or having a longer in-breath will bring more energy into the mind. Sometimes using the counting can help because it gives the mind something to do so it's not drifting off so much. It wakens. Or using the word budo, bud with the in-breath, do with the out-breath, can help. Budo means awake. And so it's brightening the mind. Each time we connect, there's wakeful aliveness. The in-breath is enlivening. Sometimes it can help, may the mind be bright. And um, it's as though you're putting light in the mind. May the mind be bright. So you're arousing effort in that way. And, of course, it helps to keep your eyes open. That can be very helpful and standing up, the usual things that you would do. Um, an exa- I, I used to think of myself as the queen of sloth and torpor. It was my sort of major hindrance for a while, especially on concentration retreats because I would sit still and the kind of agitation had gone away. 
and one um, I was sitting um, actually a few months ago. And a lo- I've been sitting for about three or four days. There, why am I still falling asleep? And so, you know, I tried make the mind bright and whatever. And so, I, you know, do, I'd gone through all my toolbox. No good. Nothing was happening. And then I suddenly had this, because I was a little concentrated, had this image of an enormous dormouse. And it was fast asleep. And I realized, wow, it's death. And so I went, wake up, really loudly, wake up, to the dormouse. (laughs) And it sort of opened one eye and gave this little smile, went back to sleep. And sort of, (laughs) I realized, ah, there's wanting here. (laughs) There's some subtle, really liking of this sleepy state that I hadn't noticed. And so some, some of you have mentioned that, that sometimes you need the counting to be sort of, 60 or 50 percent and not this gentle soft counting in the mind it needs to be a little louder and one of the ways um, I like to think of it it's like we have a control panel and we're tuning in to the breath we're tuning in to concentration and sometimes we need the course level of control which happens as we first start in our practice and this applies to to a lot of our practice and the course level is needed to help us come back but then as things get more subtle we need to use a more gentle softer control so that we don't take such wide swings and I'll keep using that analogy as we go this sense of tuning in and how that can be helpful And sometimes underneath the sleepiness, there's aversion or fear or doubt. And it can be helpful to notice if that's what's feeding it. What's feeding the sleepiness? And not to be discouraged, because each time that you notice you're asleep is actually a moment of being awake. Another retreat, I... No, I, I was really quite present with falling asleep. And I probably fell asleep, I don't know, a thousand times a sitting. But each time I woke up, I woke up on the in-breath. And then I noticed I fall asleep on the out-breath. And so it was asleep, awake, asleep, awake. My eyes were kind of going like that. And I then, but then what happened after, <laughs> you know, a couple of sittings like this, it went on, um, was all of a sudden I had amazingly clear concentration because that was building concentration even though it didn't feel like anything was happening at the time. And so don't underestimate the power of coming back. And if you can let it be okay, sleepiness is here. This is what to do with it. Keep connecting, keep sustaining. So that's sleepiness. And it takes time sometimes for these antidotes to work. They're like medicine that we have to take in order to have it work. So, wichara is the antidote to doubt. And doubt is a really, really difficult hindrance because often it sort of comes unnoticed until we're really caught in its power and believing its stories. And it's very unpleasant. Sometimes we go from watching the breath here or there or maybe I should do this or do that and we're unable to give our full attention to the practice we kept get, keep getting scattered and there's a way that we're holding ourselves back sometimes it takes the form of trying to get it right am I getting it right yet 
or comparing to how we were the last retreat or how we think other people are. Or maybe it's these teachers don't know how to give a concentration retreat. (laughs) Or I don't like the instruction or there's too much talk. Whatever it is, we get caught in doubting the practice. I should have gone to a different retreat. This is not the right retreat for me. The simile is traveling through the desert without a map. Or um, the pond um, is muddy and you can't see clearly. Sustained thought, the vichara, really helps because the mind is firmly sustained on the breath and we're immersing um, in, in the awareness of the breath. And so then there's no room for doubt. We're intimate with what's happening and we're, we've settled deeper. And the deeper we settle into the object, the less we get caught in the superficial conjecture that is what doubt is. As we sustain, we can actually feel a deepening of clarity. It can happen as we start to be patient. And no matter what, doubt is here. I'm just going to keep sustaining with the breath. I, you know, you hear what the stories of doubt is saying, you still keep connecting with the breath. And that builds faith. One of the um, intentions or requests that I find the most helpful to me is may the mind be free from limiting beliefs. And sometimes if I've been through a period of doubt, I'll say that at the beginning of the sitting. May the mind be free from limiting beliefs. To remind me that those voices are not necessarily true. Sometimes there's fear underneath doubt. Fear of what might happen if we get really concentrated. Sometimes it feels scary. And so it's helpful to just notice that and respect. And once we're aware of it, we can, keep, we can continue with our practice. The other thing is that the connecting and sustaining is not um, like a one-time thing. It's something we're continually, over and over, making that intention, a fresh start, so that we have continuity with ease. We connect and sustain over and over. And that's what builds the confidence. Sometimes our staying, our sustaining, is only partial. We're we're with the breath, but the mind has also got some story going on. And we've talked about the background foreground. But it's useful to notice, am I completely with the breath? Am I staying completely or just partially? Or am I also, oh, it's only partial. Can I just get a little more intimate, sustain a little more, really connect and sustain a little more? Sometimes it's complete, but it only happens intermittently. We're completely here for a while and then we're gone. And so it helps to notice that too. So that gradually we can completely be here and we can do it continuously with ease. So we're not um, doing it in a forced way, but just allowing, receptive, receiving, relaxed, this sustaining. So the sustaining is more just a resting with, as we keep saying, not a sort of trying to stick to or forced to. 
The reason the continuity is so important is that whenever we have lapses, often we lose it at the end of the out-breath. That's a common place to lose it. There's a break. Remember, um, Andrea was doing that lovely example of here we are with the breath, and then um, the breath gets more subtle, and all of a sudden, we're gone. But what happens here is there's an in-breath, and then there's a gap before the ne- bef- after the out-breath, before the next in-breath, and the same thing happens. We get disconnected. So the gap leads leaves us the, the space leaves a gap in which hindrances can arise really quickly. It can be helpful for some people to, um, at least I've found this helpful, um, if there's not quite enough stillness to have the duration of the in-breath, the duration of the out-breath, and then sustaining, connecting with the sensations in the body. In-breath, out-breath, body. So there isn't a gap. If there's stillness, it's in-breath, out-breath, stillness. There's this resting in awareness, and there you are when the next breath arises. But you're really present and sustaining with that space between breaths. So as they become established, and we experience every part of the in-breath, every part of the out-breath, the spaces between breaths, the hindrances are excluded, and we start to feel some joy, peace, ease. And this is the development of what's called piti. And one of the translations for that is joy, rapture, rapt attention is the translation I like. So we're complete, it's, it's, we're just right there, and there's a delight. Um, the attention ra- rests easily and naturally because it's happy to be there. And there's a receiving and tasting of experience, a savoring of experience. So really enjoying the quality of the breath and of the experience. There's a sense of fullness and well-being. The whole body and the breath, um, it's like it's a, a welling up of energy of pleasant energy that we're filled with. The body and mind are filled with awareness, with presence. And it's, it's a lovely feeling. The word piwati, drinking in, this drinking in and savoring. And so it brings in a joy and a delight that are not dependent on sense pleasures. They're just coming from our practice, from this sense of being completely connected. And because it's not dependence on sense pleasures, it's the antidote to ill will and aversion. It refreshes the mind and body. And there are different categories of this energy, um, all sorts of different categories that are described in the suttas. But what um, for me is important is that when it's associated, when piti, when piti arises as a result of striving, the energies can be unpleasant and tiring. And that was true for me in the early days of my concentration practice. I wasn't encouraged to relax. It was go for it, connect, sustain. There was a lot of pushing in my practice and a lot of wanting. And I would get into very far-out states 
they were very intense, but there was also a lot of very unpleasant energy that came with that. Because of that pushing, the PT was just very, um, it was harsh. There was, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't sort of useful or particularly healing. Um, and so if, when the retention is relaxed, this rapt attention is very healing and peaceful and joyful. And there's a sweetness to it. And um, it's, it's very helpful. And it, then it's a powerful antidote to ill will. When you're caught in that rough PT, it's not an antidote to ill will because, in fact, you begin to develop aversion to it. And so then you can't use it as an antidote to ill will. But this PT that comes from a relaxed place is is a very skillful antidote for ill will. Um, The problem is, how do we get from aversion, from aversion to, how do we get between the two? How do we get, how do we help that happen? It seems like they're so far apart. What we do to get from aversion to rapture, we create the conditions for it to develop. Can't make rapture happen. It's not like that. But we but by gently cultivating the connecting and sustaining, they lead to that. What we can also do is imbue the space with friendliness. That's why we do the meta practice as Philip was doing with you this afternoon and Donald the other day. To imbue the space with friendliness, that helps. So that there's goodwill towards the breath. We're encouraging this space of friendliness. And we're cultivating the connecting and sustaining with patience rather than rushing. And it's also helpful to see that there's a choice. We can actually stop feeding the states of aversion and start feeding instead goodwill, connecting, sustaining. We can redirect. We can affirm the connection to the breath rather than fueling the story or the drama or whatever it is that's happening. And so this is again where we noticed, what am I connected and sustaining with? Notice the tendencies to focus on what's wrong. It can be a very compelling energy. So our intention is to stop feeding it and to redirect. One person I talked to quite a few years ago had this nice mantra. She would go, not now, don't know, let it go. It was very simple. (laughs) Didn't disturb her connection with the breath, but it was helpful. Not now, don't know, let go. So, um, sometimes it can be very difficult when the aversion is very strong, whatever it is, whether it's anger or fear or um, some kind of pain, it can be difficult. And if we can just keep the breath as a through line, the breath can be so useful. And in the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, the Buddha is quite specific about the use of the breath. Breathing in, aware of the body. Bodily formations is one translation. Breathing out, aware of them. Breathing in, taking care of the bodily formations. 
Breathing out, taking care. Breathing in, calming the body formations. Breathing out, calming. And so if it's physical pain, we're breathing, using the breath to bring calming to the body or to bring caring to the body. May the body be held in kindness. So we're having this intention to take care of the body. We're still connected and we're using skillful means. If it's a difficult mental state, breathing in aware of the word, some translation is of mental formations. We're aware of what's here. Breathing in, caring. Breathing out, caring or calming, whatever the word might be. To bring that sense of caring in really takes care of it. The other thing that's so helpful is no matter what, see if we can do the practice. Gentle, persistence, patience, no matter what's happening. Analogy that I like, because I used to really love kayaking, is when you're paddling in rough water, that is not the time to stop paddling. (laughs) You keep paddling. No matter how difficult it is and rough it is, you keep paddling because that's what keeps you balanced. In the same way, even with all these strong winds of difficult emotions going by, you just keep that connection with the breath and it builds the stability. Even if it's only a very tiny shred of the breath in the background, it's holding you in the midst of the storm, in safety. That's how the connecting and sustaining is so helpful. And if it's impossible, then we go into an eddy for a while and rest. I can't do this right now. I need to just stop and maybe do some metta or take a walk or whatever. So as, as, um, as, the, the sweet, as the piti begins to settle, as we begin to connect with that more, then we start to develop some happiness and stillness. And this is sukha that um, Andrea was talking about last night. The energy of the piti starts to settle a little bit, and there's more of a sense of ease, contentment, peacefulness. It's more subtle than rapture. It's just this sense of, ah. And the analogy is, with the piti, you see the oasis and you get all the anticipation and excitement. Here it is, it's wonderful. And then the, um, the sukha is you now you've had the drink and you're lying there and you're just content. So that analogy, it re- evolves naturally and you can't force it, but you can incline the mind towards it. And there's a relief from this calming Soothe, it's soothing and smooth, and there's a sweetness. There's this contentment that's there. And there's a simplification, and it's as though the streams of the body, mind, and heart are gently coming together, and the nervous system is being smoothed down. And that's why it's so helpful as an antidote to restlessness. All the difficult, restless energies in the body, mind, and heart begin to settle. The excitement that sometimes comes with piti from increased energy begins to settle. Um, Sometimes it's the agitation of worry or anxiety, and that gets to settle too. Restlessness is fed 
by fixing often, by that movement of doing and trying to fix. And the simile is slavery to emotions or a pool disturbed by winds. So as sukha develops naturally from our practice, we get increasingly content and the restlessness starts to subside. This moment is enough. Things are okay as they are. What helps with restlessness are some of the things that you know from your Vipassana practice. Making more space if it's restlessness that's caused by tightness or striving. Having a sense of spaciousness. Perhaps sometimes if you've become very tight and agitated, breathing through the whole body for a while, opening up the awareness, can help calm the energy. Sometimes if it's anxiety in the mind, again, bringing and redirecting to Vitaka Vachara for a while. And again, the counting can help with that too. We're less dispersed, distracted or scattered. It can also help to intentionally incline the mind to calm. And I've found that very helpful when the piti is agitated and there's a lot of energy. Sometimes, for me, the piti would be kind of like an excited kid jumping up and down, a little bouncy energy. Just inclining to calm can be very helpful. May the mind and, or body be calm that request. And again, it's the calming is not a doing. We're not trying to push the PD down. Calm down. Stop it. Sit down. It's much more an invitation of calm. Sometimes we can sense the calm or the stillness around us and relax into it. It can help to slow down, as I need to do when I'm talking. Slow down. Stop doing. Leave alone. All those are things that invite calm. Sometimes when, when these pleasant states arise, we start getting excited. And those of you who've practiced a while think, oh, maybe I should make some resolutions now. and I should incline for this jhana or that jhana or whatever. And there starts to be some expectation and doing. And we get more agitated. Calming stopping doing, just being with the breath, relaxing. And when we do that, we start to develop, it moves gradually into this final factor, ekagata, ekagata. This is the antidote to desire. And it's that complete integration of body, mind, and heart. When they're coming together, they're unified and still and there's contentment, and we're free from preference. The mind isn't moving towards anything. It's not moving away from anything. It's not drawn into desires. It's just completely content. The body is suffused with this stillness, energy, and the mind is very still. Ajahn Sumedho calls it the one point that includes everything. So it's not a tightness, it's just open, still, but unified. We're totally present with the moment's experience, and nothing needs to be any different. There's no outward flow of attention. 
So there's a timelessness and a stillness. This unification. There's not, we're not split or divided. And we sense this is the natural state of the mind, to be in this unified place that's non-dual. such a sense of ease, stillness, purity. And it's the antidote to desire. And because it's one-pointed and content in this way, and no completely free from preferences, the mind isn't turned. The mind doesn't get turned doesn't move in the direction of wanting. It's complete, sufficient. So pleasant objects lose their power over the mind. That which knows desire is not desire. This is Ajahn Tate. If we train this restless mind of ours to experience the tranquility of one-pointedness, we will see that the one-pointed mind exists separately from the defilements, anger, greed, whatever. The mind and defilements are not identical. The mind forges imaginings that harness the defilements to itself. And it's this unification of the mind that frees them and shows us that they're not it's possible to be not caught. The simile is being in debt to our sense pleasures um, or a pool of multicolored dye where we get entranced and we get caught in wanting, whether it's internal wanting or external wanting, to have a good meditation, more sukha, external wanting to have a real, really good cup of coffee or chocolate or whatever it is, we get caught. The traditional antidote to greed is generosity. And so it can be helpful to, what will I get out of this practice which feeds the wanting, to move it into what can I give? Giving our full attention, being generous to ourselves, being patient. There's a lovely analogy that I like about the royal elephant. Only when the elephant goes forward with the whole body immersed in service to the king is the elephant considered royal. And this is like us. In some way, we're often withholding part of ourselves. Some part is withholding. We're keeping some parts separate from the meditation. But this fullness of ekagata is when there's complete entering into the meditation object. Nothing is held back. We're completely unified. And so then we enter into this place of stillness, fullness. The third and fourth qualities the piti and the sukha, can be very compelling. And they can be a source of desire and attachment. We can really love those states and want to create them, want them back. 
find that we come into the hall, give me some more of that again. What did I do to make it happen last time? Last retreat I got some sukha, last sit I got it, now I want it again. So they're very, sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes the hindrance part of it is very subtle. And we really need to just be aware of it. It's not bad. It's, we, want, we want the pleasant states are not bad. It's more just to recognize and see if we can gently stay with the breath and not be turned by the sukha and the piti, but still stay here, stay connected, refining the attention. Remember, that's that control knob. And this is, the, again, the piece. When we're in the early stages of our practice, we need the coarser control knob. As things get more refined, if we make two big adjustments, we get, it can shift us too quickly. So we need to ease up a little, ease up from the breath. Let it show us itself so that we don't get caught in attachment or aversion. We can also make a simple attention, an intention for the truth and not for experiences. So when the hindrances are all resolved, as the analogy goes, we're free from debt, we have good health, we're released from prison, we're emancipated from slavery, we found a way out of the desert, and we've arrived at a safe place. And this is a warm, loving, bright, clear, still state. The factors, these five factors, are now balanced. And they're really, really healing. But it's important to know that they are states. They're very per- They're very beneficial, very beneficial, <laughs> but they're not permanent and they're not ours. They come due to causes and conditions and we can feed these causes and conditions and they increase the confidence and they increase this pleasant feelings, but we can do it without owning them and without getting attached. So just to summarize, I reviewed some ways of working with the hindrances individually and with the use of these jhana factors. And we've seen that that the concentration itself inhibits the hindrances simply by unifying the mind and closing off these doors. The vitaka brings us to the moment. The vichara sustains and fills out the moment. The piti reminds us to receive fully, savor, be interested, immersed. And the sukha reminds us to relax, as though all the energy channels dilate and we're filled with this contentment and happiness. And the ekagata, the heart and the mind and the body are unified and and content. So we've unified all the streams of being into one bright, composed state. And so the medicine 
is the connecting and sustaining, and we have to remember to keep taking it. And have faith in it, that it will happen. So that we're feeding this and not feeding the hindrances. And we're reinforcing these wise habits. We're recruiting. It's like many of you are familiar now with this neurobiology. We're recruiting this way of connecting and sustaining so that it becomes automatic and the mind starts to do it all by itself. The concentration becomes like automatic and flows on its own. We're not trying to fix anything. We're simply avoiding and abandoning these difficult mind states and cultivating the jhana factors. As we cultivate them, the hindrances decrease. As the hindrances decrease, the concentration deepens. So it's this beautiful circle. And we, can, as I was saying, we can't make the piti and the sukha happen, but we can cultivate these seeds. Each jhana factor serves as a support for the next one. What we have control over is the first two. And as we do that, as we apply this momentum of connecting and sustaining over and over, planting the seeds, watering it with balanced attention, without expectation, gradually interest and ease develop. That leads to rapture and delight in the practice. That leads to happiness and contentment. And that leads to this increasing one-pointedness and calm and clarity. And then when these factors are strong enough and the hindrances are excluded, there's this profound relief and we begin to develop and enter into what's sometimes called access concentration and then to what some of you are familiar with and have heard about is these states of absorption called jhana which is so helpful and beneficial for our practice. And the mind becomes softer and more pliable and flexible. And from this place, we can begin to develop wisdom. So as you're aware of the stillness right now, as you gently connect and sustain with the breath, incline the mind so a sense of ease in the body and heart. Letting this fill the body the heart, the awareness. And may all these beautiful factors that I've been speaking about begin to develop and grow in each of us. That we can connect and sustain being present and awake. Develop joy and delight 
find ease and contentment. And the mind become unified, still, clear, at peace. As you hear the bell, allow the sound to remind you to gently continue receiving, relaxing, opening in presence and awareness. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.